0: Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby, that you may grow thereby. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and our spiritual life through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which he has given to us great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the overflow of the corruption of lust that is in the world. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful as we come together to the Scriptures that we are to be refreshed, encouraged, strengthened, instructed, and challenged. For your Word is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is through your Word that you sanctify us by means of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we're thankful that we can focus upon your Word. Father, we pray for our time in this nation that in the previous 300 years, 400 years, we have had great opportunities to learn the Word. But Father, we live in a world now that is filled with a lot of hostility to Christianity, a lot of hostility to evangelicals who preach the truth. And Father, we pray that we might be firm and steadfast, and that our preaching of your word may shine as a light, and that it may be known to those who are seeking truth, that there are churches that still stand on your word. Father, we pray that as we open your word today, that we may come to be challenged and understand all that we learn. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, and we continue in our study of Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, which is the next paragraph, and last week we did an overview of this, this paragraph, and starting this morning we're going to look at it in terms of the various component parts that are here. And the focal point in this passage is to pray and how we should pray. And I think that it is important to for us as we go through the Scriptures and read through the Scriptures, and I hope that you are reading through a chapter or two or three every uh, every day, that you note various prayers that are found in the Scriptures. There are a lot of Paul, prayers of Paul that are uh, sprinkled throughout his, his epistles. Of course, we have the Psalter, the 150 Psalms, most of which are designed to focus us in terms of prayer. And we can learn a lot about prayer as we have just by studying the Psalms. But in this passage, I'm going to bring out some things that Paul prays for for the Ephesian believers And this is uh, to be applied to all believers. It should be understood that it's not just for those Ephesian believers in the first century, but it has uh, application direction for believers uh, throughout the church age. And so we should think about this and figure out how to incorporate the language that we find here and apply it and use it in in our own prayers just to remind you a little bit about what we covered last time the passage begins in verse 14 for this reason i bow my knees to the father of our lord jesus christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named and then we have our the the first point of content in the prayer in the prayer what paul is primarily praying for that He would grant you, He being the Father, would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. Verse 17 is going to give us a result of that, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted, or literally it's having already been rooted and grounded in love. And then the next result that may be able to comprehend With all the saints, what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now this morning we're going to be focusing on the first three verses. All of this is one sentence in the original, and the opening verb is, I bow my knees, which is basically an idiom though it may be literally true that he got down on his knees and bowed his head, but it is uh, also idiomatic for just praying to God. He is going to uh, the Father uh, and he is asking, first of all, that that here introduces the content that he would grant you to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. That's the focal point, is to be strengthened spiritually, the inner man being parallel to in your hearts in the next verse of verse 17, so that he's talking about our spiritual strengthening. Now last time I laid it out this way, a little more different visual. Why is Paul praying and for what is he praying? he lays the foundation in the first verse. He's praying to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we ask the question, why is he praying? For what is he praying? And he is praying, point two, or the second step, that the Father would use the Holy Spirit to strengthen them in their spiritual life. And then we ask, why does he want us to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit? You see, these that causes or result and purpose causes are not four different equal causes. They build together. So what, what the result is saying is the answer to this question. And the result, the first result is so that Christ would make his home in them, that Christ would dwell richly in us, uh, similar to what Paul says in Colossians 3.16, that the word of God would richly... Dwell within us. So, why does Christ want to be at home in us? The purpose for that is so that we can begin, begin, not totally, but it's going to be a process that begins now and goes into and through eternity so that they can begin to comprehend the immensity of Christ's love for them. Since we'll always be finite and God's Every aspect of God's character is infinite. We will never have an exhaustive knowledge of the love of Christ. We'll never have an exhaustive knowledge of God. So we will spend eternity, and a billion years from now, we'll still be learning more about the love of Christ for us, and we'll still be learning more about the Father. So why does he want them to know the love of Christ? That is the ultimate result stated in verses uh, 17b to 19, so that they might be spiritually mature and that we might be spiritually mature, reflecting the love of Christ in our lives. So that that is the progression. So we're going to begin today with the first verse. We may not, I'll warn you now, we may not get beyond it. So he begins, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The main clause, I always like to state these things, even if we only look at one verse, is that I don't want us to lose the, the uh, forest for the trees. We take a lot of time looking at the leaves and the branches and then the trees, and we want to make sure we, we keep a good uh, balance between the details and the synthesis of the passage. The main clause is, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then skip down to 16, that, okay, the content, why is he praying? That he would grant you to be strengthened in the inner man. So that's the focal point. He is praying that we are spiritually strengthened, and this is through the Spirit. So as I came to, as I started this morning, I was going to Cover this through 16, and then I realized that we need at least just one whole independent message on just what this means through the Spirit. So we need to understand some things about prayer. So Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees uh, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, for this reason... Uh, takes us back to what he has said uh, previously. Now, not previously in 3, 1 uh, 1 through 13, but previously in terms of what is in chapter 2. Remember, chapter 3 started off for this reason, and then he goes off on a secondary line of thought, So 1 through 13 is actually a parenthesis in the the whole flow of what he is saying. So when he says for this reason he's taking us back to 2.12 through uh, 22. So I want us to be reminded of what is he saying there because that's really the foundation, that's the reason, that's the motivation for what he is going to say Uh, in in verses uh, 14 to 19, and why he is praying this. Why does he pray for us to know the love of Christ in this rich way? And to understand that, we have to keep in mind that when the audience that he's addressing and the audience that this is ultimately directed to is the body of Christ, which is now composed of equally of Jew and Gentile, they're equal before God, which means all ethnic, racial, cultural boundaries are null and void in the body of Christ. And this is so important for us to take to heart in terms of our biblical, uh, theocentric worldview is that in the context of what we're facing in this world, We need to understand what the Word of God says about these things because the the whole concept uh, of racism and cultural distinction is being being abused terribly. And uh, someone said yesterday that they uh, really appreciated the book that we have in the back, and if you don't have it, uh, there's a stack on the right going out. It is by Erwin uh, Lutzer, the pastor emeritus of Moody Church in Chicago, Dallas Seminary graduate. He was in at Dallas uh, at the same time Charlie Clough was. But the book is called We Will Not Be Silenced. And if you are still bewildered, confused, not quite sure that you could uh, explain to someone else what social justice is, what uh, critical race theory is, what um, uh, Marxism and cultural Marxism are, then this will help you. We have to advance our vocabulary a little bit in order to understand what is going on and why these people are saying the things that they're saying and why it appears to us that things are just so fractured in our culture and i pointed this out uh, in the judges study on tuesday night i talked about a little bit about the, the background of this but what we have today are basically four world views that are at odds with each other in this culture i don't know of another time in history where a country had such such a plethora of worldviews. We have those mostly who are older and who have been taught well by older people who are not believers but who have a modernist worldview. Modernism uh, passed from the scene as it were in terms of the academy, in terms of the intellectual drivers of, of culture. By the end of the 19th century, it was seen as being bankrupt and not being able to answer the basic issues of life and not being able to provide hope. Now, it still held on and and was a dominant force in the culture because these things change at the upper level of the so-called intelligentsia about 50 to 75 years before they get down to the level of the man in the street. So we have the end of modernism about 1900, and that's followed by postmodernism, a term most of us didn't pay a lot of attention to until probably the 80s or 90s as we began to see its impact. But actually, uh, in, 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 the, in the history of ideas, this shift occurred at the beginning of the 20th century, and it started really being felt in our culture in the 60s in terms of a lot of moral relativism and the antinomianism, that is the rebellion, rebelliousness against absolutes, especially moral absolutes by the baby boom generation. A lot of people will pick the date of 1963 or 64 as the transition time. And then By the time you get into the late 70s, and I read this one place. I'm still trying to find it on the Internet. I I read uh, uh, the uh, uh, statement by the intellectual architect of what is called uh, critical race theory, and he said this is the next next, uh, evolutionary development from postmodernism. And a lot of you are still trying to figure out what critical race theory is. That's why you need to read this book, listen to—I think it was Andy Woods that talked about critical race theory at the at the chafer conference and did a, did a great job. But we've got to become um, we've got to make these terms a little more user friendly. And so that that gives us one an older generation that's primarily thinking in terms of modernism. Well, postmodernisms think. Postmodernist people think that modernists don't have a clue. And these are opposed to one another. Worldviews that are, they're pagan, they're both pagan, they're both opposed to one another. And then postmodernism is developing into something new characterized by all this social justice and, uh, and, and Marxism, social Marxism, all this kind of thing and critical race theory. And that's opposed to the other two. So part of the nation is is thinking and living as modernists. Another part are thinking and living as postmodernists, and another part are living and thinking as this new group. Uh, I'll just call it, bundle it all together in terms of of uh, uh, critical race theory. And against all three of those are biblicists, those who hold to a biblical worldview. Uh, and the problem with all of us who hold to a biblical worldview is we all came out of the same culture as these other people and so we have a lot of bits and pieces of those worldviews that have already invaded and infected our souls and that's why Romans 12:2 is so important that we are not to be conformed to the world pressed into its mold but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So what that verse indicates is that over against these three different worldviews that are clashing with each other in our culture, we have a biblical worldview that is at odds with all three of those. And you're in the middle of the battlefield. That's the issue. And the battlefield is where? It's right here. That's what, when we get to Ephesians 6.10 and following, which talks about spiritual warfare, that's where the battle is fought for us. It's fought between our ears. And so we have to learn to think differently, and that's one of the reasons we go through so much that we go through uh, in this church talking about uh, things like the grammar uh, the exegesis, uh, exegesis of the passage to really come to understand what is Paul, what is the Word of God actually saying to us? And part of the problem that you see today, if you haven't noticed it, that is part of, uh, we've seen elements of this in the previous hundred years as things have gradually d- developed. Uh, in postmodernism, what you had is that every statement uh, needs to be deconstructed. And that means you destroy it, basically. You take it all apart, and you recognize that there's all these different elements there that really ought to mean something else, and then you uh, put it back together. And so uh, you, you, you it, it discover it all has ultimately some socialist Marxist meaning, actually relative, relativistic meaning. And now what they're teaching is you don't even need to know grammar. Everybody can make up their own rules for language. What's the question that we need to ask? I'm sorry, sir. I didn't really understand what you just said. Everybody needs to make up their own language. So you're not speaking my language, so I don't have a clue what you're saying. You see, that's the, that's the irrationality of their position is they, want, they do not want their statements deconstructed. They don't want their statements to be meaningless so in order to communicate that all statements are meaningless and everybody can make up their own language, they have to assume that the language that they're using is understandable to everyone and appeals to a higher standard for meaning and, and uh, understanding. So it's, in, it's like postmodernism. It's still inherently illogical and ir- irrational, and you can't live on the basis of its, of its assumptions. So we have to go to the Word of God in order to understand what is going on, and that means we have to understand these these things in terms of the the grammar, the structure uh, the structure of the passage. And it takes us to back to this passage that is at its core at complete odds with the current view of race and and race, ethnicity, and, and culture. Because what we learn here is that those factors are no longer relevant in the church. The church is the only solution to the fragmentation that has occurred as a result of, of this abuse of racial and ethnic distinctions. And so Paul reminds the Gentiles, the believers at at Ephesus, back, going back to uh, 2.12, he reminds them that formerly as Gentiles, they didn't have the same privileges before God as the Jews. And that's not inherently wrong. See, today's world would say, oh, that's wrong. But this is how God is working things out in history so that we can understand him. Uh, the Gentiles were alienated from the blessings God had promised to Israel, so they did not have a Messiah, no promise, no Messianic promise. They were alienated completely from the political entity, the Commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise: the Abrahamic covenant, the Land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the New Covenant. They're just they're, they're outside, and uh, they had no future hope, and they were without God in the world. Well, what Paul says now that is now in this church age that barrier has been removed at the cross the barrier between Jew and Gentile so that in the church and the instant anyone whether they are uh, whether they are Asian whether they are European whether they're African whether they're blend whatever they are everyone is united together without barriers in the body of Christ and they are said to be a new man, a new body, a new household of God and a new temple. And that is the focal point because Christ is the one who is our peace Paul says in in Ephesians 2 and as a result of the fact that he is our peace that means there's no barrier between Jew and Gentile and Christ removed the barrier and has reconciled both of us, Jew and Gentile, to uh, God. And so there's this new entity, the church. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people who think that, well, you know, churches are just filled with racism. That's why you have... Uh, blacks meeting one place, uh, Hispanic someplace else, Asian someplace else, and you don't really have too many churches that that have uh, blended ethnicities. And that's for a lot of different reasons. And there have been churches that I know of that have spent a lot of time reaching out to different uh, ethnic uh, communities and have had success. I have one in mind, I won't mention who it is, that has had quite a bit of success but see all of those different ethnicities just like uh, uh white people just like caucasians come with a load of human viewpoint baggage and so when they come into church what this church discovered was that the reason they they basically differ in the way they they worship on Sunday morning has some of it's neutral but most of it is just because they have this other baggage and they don't want to deal with that baggage that the, the net, which is the result of their human viewpoint thinking, on a Sunday morning and submit to the Word. And so what happens over time is these groups would come and then they would leave and go start their own their own congregation. And some of that is okay and fine and there's nothing wrong with it and it's not for bad reasons and some of it might be for bad reasons. It's extremely complex. I've been looking at this stuff for, for 30 or 40 years and it's just you know because every person is different. We all have different uh, mixes and combinations of human viewpoint and divine viewpoint in, in, in our souls. And so Paul is saying for that reason, for the reason that there's this new new man, new body, new household of God, and new temple, for this reason, for reason of the existence of this new entity of the church, I bow the knee. He is praying for them. They have to understand this, and it has to be part of their thinking in the congregation there in, in Ephesus. So what happens at this point when he says, I bow the knee, we have to understand the significance of what he is saying there. This word, this verb that is used here is a Greek verb, kompto. I don't have a slide for it. And it is only used four times in the New Testament, and it means to bend or to bow. And it is used in a way to express worship and submission to the authority of God. It is used uh, one time in uh, Romans 11.4. It's a quote from 1 Kings 19.18 about the 7,000 uh, faithful believers in Israel at the northern kingdom at the time of Elijah. And it says God says, for I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And what he is saying is, there's seven thousand who are not worshiping Baal; they're not submitting to the pagan worship. In Ephesians three, I'm uh, excuse me, in Romans fourteen eleven, and also Philippians two ten, the second and third places where this is used, it refers to approximately the same thing. For it is written, Romans fourteen eleven, as I live, says the Lord. Every knee shall bow to me. It's worship, it's submission to the authority of God. Every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. Well, what are they confessing? Well, that's Philippians 2.10, that at the name of Jesus, this refers to the future when he is the king, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and those under the earth. So it is submission to the authority of God and worship of him. So the bending of the knee conveys worship or submission to a supernatural power uh, to God specifically in this passage, and it thus is an expression of Paul's desire to prayer. So what we need to do is take a look at a few things about prayer. And uh, first, I just want to comment on this, this word because literally it means to bend the knee, and it is not necessary in, to pray in a specific posture. If you look at Scripture, a lot of people get odd ideas about prayer. There are a lot of misconceptions, and one is that if you assume a specific posture, then it's somehow more impressive to God and yet, in Scripture, people assume many, many different postures. You can uh, find phrases such as uh, those who bow the knee in Ezra 9.5, as well as Psalm 95.6 in Daniel, in Daniel 6.10, in the New Testament, Luke 22.41, and Acts 7.60. So bowing the knee is one posture, lying prostrate before God, stretched out on one's uh, face. Numbers 16.45, Joshua 7.6, Ezra 10.1, and Matthew 26.39. This is where the Lord lies prostrate in the Garden of Gethsemane. 1 Kings 18.42, a position I don't think anyone here has probably taken, he put his head between his knees. You don't need to admit it if you have. And then other standing. And I would, you know, I have my favorite time to pray is when I'm stretched out flat on my stomach about to go to sleep and I'll pray for about 10 minutes. But every all the other distractions are out of the way and I do do that. Or when I wake up in the middle of the night or wake up at any other time I just rehearse, go through my 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 prayer list. So there aren't any specific postures. However, I do think that sometimes we are too informal in our prayers. I'm not prescribing anything. I'm simply want to give you something to think about. I have read through a lot of church history, a lot of biographies, and I have been impressed over the years with how many men and women who take a posture of praying and they get down on their knees by the bed or somewhere else in the home and pray together. And there is there's nothing wrong with that. I think the to me the most amusing posture of prayer in all of church history is that of Susanna Wesley. She was the mother of uh, two pastors, two who became pastors and hymn writers, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, who were uh, among two of the three founders of what we refer to today as Methodism. She had like 15 or 16 kids. She had no peace in her home, yet she needed peace to pray to God. So she would go into a corner, and back, that was the day when women would wear uh, several different uh, uh, slips under their their dresses and she would just pull the outer one up over her head. And that told her kids leave me alone, I'm praying to God. So there's a lot of different ways to do this but uh, it's important to do it and it's important to develop that habit in our lives to pray consistently, if we can, the same time, every day, the same same way. Now, we're all different and that's why I'm not prescribing anything. But it impressed me recently, as I quoted this not long ago, that I was reading in this book, which is a biography of Major Dick Winters. It's called The Biggest Brother. He was the commander, if you've read, seen The Band of Brothers or read the book, he was the commander of E-Company, Easy Company, and then later was uh, promoted up to, to battalion. But he, this is, in the middle of this story, it's talking about the uh, June 5th, 1944, June 6th, 1944, excuse me, June 6, D-Day. For those of you who may be young, uh, that has another name. It was called The Longest Day. And that was the name of the film based on the book, The Longest Day. But his day began that June sixth actually began late the night before around probably 8 or 9 or 10 as their Uh, as they got into the C-47s and prepared for departure. We all know that takes a lot of time to do all that, get everybody at the right place and get it done. So they didn't get any sleep the night before. Probably during the day before, they are spending their time checking, double-checking all of their equipment, making sure their parachutes are all packed correctly, going over the maps and everything else that they needed to have in their heads for their... Uh, jump their parachute jump into Normandy on on D-Day, so that's how the la- the day before went. So he's pulled an all-nighter to begin with, and it's one that is loaded with adrenaline pumping, and you're you're you don't know what's going to happen, and you have to focus, and you're using a lot of of mental energy, and you load up on the plane, and they departed somewhere around midnight that night to fly across the English Channel, and to be dropped uh, dropped into Normandy. When they landed in Normandy, they were scattered all over the place, and, and by the grace of God, they were able to find each other, and only part of the company was able to reassemble. It was prob- Likely the company commander was dead, so uh, Major Winters, Captain Winters at the time, or Lieutenant Winters, had to take command, and they had to get to their objective, which was about eight kilometers away. So they had to go on a little hike that morning, and they got towards their objective towards nine in the morning. And this was a manor called Breckort Manor, where the where the Nazis had established uh, three um, three uh, areas where they had uh, their 88s. That was their main artillery round, and they had to take them out. That was a three-hour uh, battle that was quite complicated sometime later winners was put in for a medal of honor which was downgraded to a distinguished service cross and many of his men were also given medals of honor for their or medals of valor for their uh, behavior in that battle so it's been a long couple of days, but that's, this is like still in the middle of the afternoon. So they had to go to a couple of other objectives and take care of enemy soldiers. And finally that night, they found a place in a hedgerow where they could bed down and finally get a little rest. And at that point, his biographer, who is Larry Alexander, says, Winter settled down and tried to sleep. Exhausted by the day's exertions, both physical and mental, but German infantry in another hedgerow across an open field kept firing their weapons into the dark and shouting. Unable to sleep, Winters decided to get up and make a personal reconnaissance, and he walked quietly along a footpath in the dark, and he heard the approaching clatter of hobnailed boots and froze. Krauts, he thought. Dropping into a ditch, he huddled there quietly as a German patrol walked by, and then he was able to get away and got back to his company. He lay on the ground uh, by another soldier named Welsh, having no blanket to cover himself. He was still in some farmer's, his stuff was still lying in some farmer's field inside of his lost leg bag. He took some newspapers he'd liberated earlier in the day and formed a small tent over his face and upper body. This was less for warmth than it was to keep away the mosquitoes he could hear bouncing off the newspaper. Now that gives you a little context because we we complain on such minor things. So this is a day and a half and he's exhausted and he's got nothing to give him any creaturely comfort. And then we read, before closing his eyes that night, Winters realized he hadn't said his prayers. So he rolled over and got to his knees. Welch, the guy next to him, said, watched somberly. Dick, he said, following Winters, amen. I'm Catholic, and when I get back home, I'll go to church every Sunday and pray, but I won't pray here. Now I got to thinking about that. What brought that about? What's going on in the background here? And I, one of the reasons I got interested in this is having read about that, I thought, I want to read his biography, but nobody ever touches on this. To have that discipline, that habit pattern so deeply ingrained in him that in the middle of all of this, at the end of a day, that is hard and harsh and he's got a thousand distractions that will never approach. He recognizes before he goes to sleep he needs to pray, and he pulls himself out of his bed and gets on his knees to pray. This has to be something that his parents drilled into him, and I don't mean in a legalistic way. I mean just teaching from childhood. This has to be ingrained in a young child from the time they're first able to kneel and pray that they need to do that. I remember, uh, and and just because they're not a believer doesn't mean you don't do it because you're forming a habit pattern at this stage. You're not necessarily teaching them doctrine yet. You're just starting to help them develop a a habit pattern. I remember that I would say prayers. Now I lay me down to sleep uh, with my parents when I was very, very, very little. But it formed that Habit pattern, and then I, I was saved when I was about six it's It's all part of developing God consciousness in your kid, but his parents must have drilled that into him. he did this through boot camp, he did this through everything this was who he was, and that that just i I, I haven't forgotten that image. That too often we who are in Bible churches and Baptist churches and other uh, churches that are loosely referred to as low churches, and that's not a manner, that's not a derogatory term. You have high high church worship, which is very uh, ritualistic and it has a, a lot of protocols and everything and, and discipline and rigor and all of those things. Low church and they're very formal. Low churches are informal. That's all, all that it means. But sometimes I think we take our informality too far toward God. And I talked about this a lot in the worship, ser- uh, worship series that I did in the middle of uh, Second Samuel, that we need to have a higher view of God and maybe a higher view of our own personal time with the Lord, our own prayer lives, our, our own, and, and um having a little more discipline in some of these areas. Again, I'm not saying you need to you know, every night kneel by the bed, but just every day at the same time pray. Maybe when you get up in the morning and get up a little bit earlier, read your Bible and pray. You can be sitting in your comfortable chair. You don't have to go lie down on a dirt road in the middle of France at 11 o'clock at night with artillery shells going off around you. Uh, but you get my point that that we find excuses to not do these things, or we 'd roll over in bed and say lord you know i 'm exhausted i 'll pray tomorrow and this example of major winters is is something to really think about what what built that into his character and then I said, "What did his parents do so parents, grandparents. This is an example of what good parenting did. So let's look at what the Bible says about about prayer. First of all, let's define prayer. You get some very strange views of prayer today. Some prayers today, since the are, are, are influenced by Eastern mysticism and by the contemplative monastic mysticism that developed in the early church. And a lot of this is just, uh, uh, if it's influenced by Eastern met mysticism, it's the idea of emptying your mind. And uh, for others, it is maybe reflecting or rehearsing Scripture. But you, you, you have these other ideas that are focused on n- not necessarily biblical, biblical things. And then you have others who just think that they are just reciting certain phrases, religious-sounding phrases to God, or they're reciting a prayer they memorized. But prayer is communication. It is our communication to God. We communicate to Him. We talk to Him through prayer. He talks to us through the Scripture. God doesn't talk to us apart from the Scripture. He doesn't give us some little vibration in our stomach, some little liver quiver to get us uh, uh, an idea of what we ought to do. He talks to us through the Scripture. We're supposed to take all that we learn from the Scripture and pray to God for wisdom to apply it correctly and then apply it to our situation. So it's our communication link uh, to the Heavenly Father. It is talking to Him. And as you've heard me say many times, it's talking honestly with God. You know, there's a lot of Christians who just try to blow smoke at God. But God's omniscient. He knows what you're really thinking. And when you're mad at God, you ought to say, God, I'm mad at you. Why did you do this? I don't understand. Help me to understand. That's part of of prayer, part part of the Christian life. There are elements to prayer. I use the acronym of CATS. The C stands for Confession. And we are very familiar with that concept. We admit to God our sins, and then adoration is praise to God. We praise Him, we worship Him, we adore Him because of all that He has done for us. The T stands for thanksgiving. That is our thankfulness toward God for all that he has done for us and all that he has provided for us. And we are to be thankful in 1 Thessalonians 5, 18, for all things. And Ephesians, for, we are to be thankful in all things. And then supplication, which is another word for making requests of God, involves two areas. Intercession for others and petitions for oneself. And you don't have to take every step in every prayer you may need to confess in every prayer, but you can confess your sin and pray for a situation you 're facing right then and right then and now. If you keep close accounts with God, you just shoot a bullet prayer to God, just a quick prayer uh, Lord, help me with this situation. What do I say here? That kind of a thing. Um, so prayers can be where you start off and you jump to Thanksgiving or you jump to a petition for yourself or you jump to uh, intercession for others. You see a situation and so you, you pray for them. You don't have to go through all of these steps. Someone recently asked me that and said, you know, I, I just don't understand it when you talk about a bullet prayer how I can go through all those steps. Well, you don't have to. They, they're, they're mixed up. And so these are just telling you what the different kinds of prayer are. Third, all prayer is to be directed to God the Father. Now this is uh, an important point because there are a lot of believers, a lot of Christians who don't understand that. And there's a lot of sloppiness actually within Christianity about this. You have people who pray to Jesus and you have people who pray to the Holy Spirit. And we have to look at the Scriptures to say what does the Scripture say and what examples do, do the Scriptures give us. We pray to the Father. We do not pray to Jesus. We do not pray to the Holy Spirit. And what we're going to see in the next subpoints is why. First of all, when Jesus taught the disciples to pray, He began with our Father. This is how you are to pray in Uh, Matthew 6, 9, wait a minute, something is goofy here with this particular slide. Matthew 6, 9, in this manner therefore pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, I've heard people teach this where they go to some of Jesus' prayers where he prayed to the Father. Well, who else is he going to pray to? That's not really good evidence as to the fact that we should pray to the Father. But when Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, he tells them they should address the prayer to the Father. Second, Jesus instructed the disciples to pray to the Father in the Upper Room Discourse. Remember, in the upper room discourse, this is that time after they've had the uh, Passover meal, the night before he goes to the cross. Uh, we're not sure when they leave the upper room, but sometime they, after, sometime along the way, they leave the upper room and they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. And along the way, Jesus is continuing to teach them. And part of, part of what he's teaching them is about the fact that he's going to send the Holy Spirit and the holy spirit will indwell within them and then he also teaches them about the spiritual life and he teaches them about prayer. And so in John 16:23 he says, "And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you." Great promise. Now, what's the first question you need to ask when you read that? What is in that day? Because sometimes you read that in the Old Testament, that's referring to, when, uh, to the day of the Lord at the end of the tribulation. So you have to ask this question, what does that mean? And in John sixteen twenty-two, the verse before, Jesus says, therefore you now have sorrow, talking about the fact that he's getting ready to be arrested and he's going to be taken to the cross and they're going to wit- witness his crucifixion and his death. And he says, therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again. Three days, three nights, he's going to rise from the dead. I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day, resurrection, Sunday, and from that day forward, he is saying, you will ask me nothing Most assuredly, I say to you whatever you ask the Father. So he's talking about what's going to happen in the church age. You address your prayers to the Father. And in verse 26, he says, also in that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. So we're asking the Father in the name of Jesus, which doesn't mean you have to end every prayer in the name of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. But what this actually means is we're coming to the Father on the basis of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Now a third reason is Jesus is our high priest. You don't pray to the high priest. The purpose of a priest is to take the people to God. So that's the role of the high priest. And so in Hebrews four fourteen. Through 16 we read, "...seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession." So this is looking back to the ascension when Jesus passes through the universe and arrives at the right hand of the Father. And then he says, "...for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, because of this high priest, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. His throne is it. It is the Father. Let us come boldly before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, I pointed out that one element of prayer is thankfulness. It's gratitude, expressing our gratitude to God. We are to give thanks to the Father. We don't give thanks to the Son and the Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.13, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Colossians 1.12, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. And Colossians 3.17, And whatever you do in word or deed, Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Ephesians 5.20 says, Always giving thanks to God the Father for each other in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then 1 Peter 1.17, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work. I went through every use of the word Father in the New Testament to break this down. I looked at a large number of verses related to the Holy Spirit. What's interesting is when Paul writes his letters, he says, I I write to you, uh, you're blessed by God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I I write to you because of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Never mentions in the salutations the Holy Spirit. I thought that was interesting. Interesting. But prayer is always to the Father. It's never to the Son. It's never to the Holy Spirit. And every time we're given instruction, it is always to pray to the Father, give thanks to the Father. And it is through the Spirit and in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are are distinctive. I've heard people say, well, I've heard that we're only supposed to pray to the Father, but I can't find that in the Bible. Really. So we have to understand these things. Now... The other reason is because of the other role of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The other role is they are interceding for us. We do not pray to an intercessor for us. We pray to the same one they are interceding with. And so in Romans 8.26, we are told that the uh, Holy Spirit, 8.26 and 27, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, I've heard some charismatics say, well, you know, I groan a lot in prayer because those are the groanings that can't be uttered. Well, if you could hear them, they were uttered and they weren't groanings that cannot be uttered. What this is saying is we just are left speechless. We just don't know how to pray or what to pray or what to ask for. And God, the Holy Spirit, is going to be the one who basically formulates our prayers. Now, we can't use that as an excuse. Sometimes people just say, well, I pray for for this person. I pray for that person. I pray for, well, what are you praying for? Uh, You have something specific to pray for for that person. And that's important. But a lot of times, sometimes we say that we don't really know what to pray exactly for. And we're just leaving that up to God, the Holy Spirit to to fill in the blanks. But don't do that all the time. Uh, Both we have to we should pray for specifics because that's the example that we have in Scripture. But the specifics that we find in Scripture are not always related to the logistical needs that we often pray for in life. The prayers that we have in Scripture are for the spiritual strength to handle whatever logistical situation they're in. Because as Paul said, I can do all things in the context. It's I can handle abounding or I can be without anything. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's not saying I can pass that that chemistry final uh, through Christ who strengthens me. It's not saying that. Okay Hebrews uh Romans 8:27 he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God so our prayers go through the holy spirit who cleans them up and passes them along Romans 8:34 who is he who condemns it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. So the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and the Son intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. So this just is a reminder, we need to pray a lot more often. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, pray without ceasing. That doesn't mean that that's your primary focus. We all have our jobs to do, and if you have a dangerous job, uh, you want to focus on that, not cut your hand off. But we are to pray continuously. That's what that means. Not every second of every day, but, but this should be our habit pattern to pray continuously. They can be short bullet prayers or they can be intentional, lengthy prayers. Sometimes you might try exercises of writing out your prayers based on Scripture, formulating your thoughts as a training exercise to deepen your own prayer life, your own understanding and articulation to God. And this has been done by many people in history. Writing out a prayer is not... you you don't have to write out every prayer. Uh, There's time for spontaneous prayers, and there's times for giving serious thought to how you're going to build or articulate your case to God as to why you want him to intervene in some particular situation. So in conclusion, we need to learn to pray. We need to emulate that to our families, to our children, to our grandchildren. You know, if, if anything, at the end of my life, I would like people to say he was a man of the word and he was a man who prayed. And to me, that would be all that it's... I've done it right, if that is how people think. We must learn to pray. We must teach our children to pray. We must make prayer a, an habitual, non-negotiable practice in our lives. That's the example of Dick Winters. It was non-negotiable. It was the longest day. He had every physical, logistical excuse in the world to say, Lord, I'm just too tired. I'll pray tomorrow. And he got up and got on his knees and prayed. That's what we what I mean. It's a non-negotiable reality in our life. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to... Get into your word to be reminded of the importance that we come to you in prayer, that we communicate with you, that we make you through prayer a vital link in every aspect of our lives, and that prayer is just one of many ways in which our walk with you deepens and intensifies. Father, we pray that we might not take what the word says lightly, but be challenged to increase our prayer lives. Father, we thank you for Christ who intercedes for us as our high priest, for God the Holy Spirit, who also intercedes for us and for his ministry in strengthening us in our spiritual life. Now, Father, we pray for those who may listen to this lesson that may have never trusted in Christ as Savior, may have never gotten to the point where they really understand the gospel, that it's for you. If you've never trusted Christ, it's for you to take the time to evaluate what you believe and to believe the gospel. Sometimes people have heard it all around them for many years, but they've never said, oh, I believe that. They've never reached that that. Uh, mental point where they are trusting Christ alone for salvation. That's all that that's needed. You don't need to walk an aisle. You don't need to raise your hand. You don't need to pray a sinner's prayer. You just trust. God in His omniscience knows what you're trusting in for salvation. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us that we'd keep these things on our mind. In Christ's name, amen.